You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week and happy Super Bowl Sunday to all who celebrate. I will be because my beloved 49ers are in the Super Bowl, so I'm going to uh, hopefully have a really good Sunday. (laughs) If not, I apologize from 2 p.m. on Saturday the 10th to my friends about the behavior I did when they lost and I was sad. The the last time this game happened, this matchup was like 2020, and um, they were they were quite annoyed with me by the end of the game because the 49ers lost, and I was I get a little bit um aggressive when when competitions are involved, including ones that I literally cannot control at all. Actually, that makes it worse. As far as like what happened this week, I had a museum day with a friend, and if you are in the LA area and you like a good craft cocktail, uh, the Academy Museum right now, and I think through the end of until the end of March, has ten specialty cocktails themed after the ten Best Picture nominees. Him and I got through eight of them. We would have made it through all ten, but <laughs> they didn't have the ingredients for two of them. And if you're not a drinker, two of them are mocktails, so there's a little something for everybody. But But that was very, very fun. And we have a date next weekend to uh, go on a little walk and then reward ourselves with alcohol, which I think is how you're supposed to do that. Who needs water when there's alcohol? Speaking of alcohol, it's also Plight of the Younger Month in Los Angeles, which is the best beer ever. And I'm very excited. I think I talked about this last year. So I've already had three of them which were all yesterday, so Friday. So I was very happy. So all of my uh, personalities are really just getting getting uh, airtime this weekend. <laughs> we got the sports, we got the movies, we got the alcohol. Now I just need to like find some time to read my book and do some crafts and I'll be just one happy little camper. <laughs> This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Pearl, which is an old film, but I saw it for the first time in a theater this week, so I'm going to count it. If you don't know, A24 is doing this thing around some holidays at eight. I think it's just at AMC theaters where they release some of their old movies that kind of fit, you know, the the theme or the vibe of the holiday. Pearl came out in, I believe, 2022 and was the secretly shot sequel to the film X, which is also a horror movie. Pearl is a great homage to old Hollywood. It It's also very darkly comedic. I really liked it when I saw it earlier this year, I think, for the first time. And uh, yeah, Ty West makes a solid horror film. I believe that's the director's name. I forgot to look. Uh, Yeah. So I think it was only in theaters for a day. But if you haven't seen it, it's it should be pretty easily available because it is an older film or not older. But you know what I mean? Also, Lisa Frankenstein is out this weekend. And maybe go see that because it was really good and no other reason why. (laughs) This week's Criterion film is Spy Number 22, which is the film Summertime from 1955. 
It's directed by David Lean, who'd go on to direct Lawrence of Arabia seven years later. And the film stars Catherine Hepburn as a lonely middle-aged secretary from Ohio on her life's dream trip to Italy. It's a very sweet, nostalgic-type film, and it's a great time capsule for the sites, like the historic sites of post-war Italy. I guess I just can't get enough Italy after last month. But there you go. It's um, it's a good little film. It's actually pretty good. For, it's uh, There's a little romance in it, so not a bad pick for this month month if that's your thing. So yeah. Anyway, on to this week's topic. This week, an actor who made a name for himself as a cowboy, but who went on to play an array of roles. Today, we cover the life and films of Gary Cooper. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Well, who's talking to you? I'm talking to you, Trampet. When I want to know anything from you, I'll tell you, you long-legged son of a... You want to call me that... Smile. With a gun against my belly, I... I always smile. (laughs) On May 7th, 1901, Frank James Cooper entered the world in Helena, Montana, the son of two English immigrants. His father was a lawyer who eventually served on the Montana Supreme Court. So very different early life compared to our last week's subject. But they ended up in the same place. In 1906, the Cooper patriarch purchased a 600-acre cattle ranch where the young Cooper and his older brother Arthur would spend their youths learning to ride horses, hunt, and fish. He learned to ride, some biographers believe, from the local indigenous children. This rule, reminiscent of the Wild West lifestyle, made his mother anxious. She was this refined British lady, and she was watching her kid become, like, a little too wild, to use a term that was in one of the things. Very outdated, very insensitive term, but that was her concern. It was the early 1900s. So there's also a way to tell... For me to tell at least some of the videos I watched, how dated it was, if the uh, the aspect ratio or the resolution wasn't too great, was um, how much they fixated on this era of his life and who he was around and the words they used. It's it's crazy when you don't hear them for a while, then you hear them again. You're like, oh, yeah, right. Oof. But yeah, worried about the uh, caliber of children she was uh, rearing, she decided to move her children to England so they would have an English education, which she did in 1909. While he was a decent student, Frank despised the school uniform and the airs he had to put on to quote-unquote fit in. This English education thing lasted about three or four years, depending on the source, and the children returned to Helena in 1912-1913, again, depending on the source. There's a lot of conflicting dates in in the early stages of his life, depending on what source you're using. So when he was 13, Frank injured his hip in a car accident. On his doctor's recommendation, he returned to the family ranch to horseback ride as a part of his recuperation. If that sounds like bad advice, it's because it was. And this actually led to Frank having a tilted walk and riding style for the rest of his life. That feels like the worst thing you could do, right? Frank preferred cowboy life to school and dropped out of high school several times. He was in and out. And it eventually took an English teacher at his final high school who encouraged him to focus on academics and participate in debate and drama. Frank would later credit this English teacher with changing his mind about education and actually getting him and convincing him to go to college. Frank became interested in art in those years and in 1922 attended Grinnell College in Iowa to further that interest. His drawings and watercolors were exhibited throughout the school and he was named art editor for the college yearbook. 
Despite a promising 18 months in college, Frank dropped out suddenly in February 1924, spent a month in Chicago looking for work as an artist before ultimately returning to Helena, where he sold editorial cartoons to the local newspaper while working several other odd jobs. In autumn 1924, Frank's father left his bench on the Montana Supreme Court and moved his wife to Los Angeles to deal with the estates of two relatives. At his father's insistence, Frank tagged along because, well, (laughs) it's not like he had anything better to do. After briefly working a series of dead-end jobs, which included electric sign sales and theatrical curtain sales, Frank met up with two friends from Montana who were working as extras and stunt writers in the horse operas on Poverty Row. This eventually led Frank to a meeting with a casting director who offered him work. Wanting money for an art class, Frank started working as a film extra and stunt writer. Eventually, this led to the opportunity for bigger roles because the dude was six foot three and very good looking. And like Marion last week, Frank Cooper didn't sound like a cowboy name. So Frank changed his name to Gary in 1925, following the advice of casting director Nan Collins, who felt the name Gary would embody the quote-unquote rough-and-tough nature of Gary, Indiana, her hometown. To his friends, though, he was Coop. Coop's first major role is probably the winning of Barbara Worth from 1926, in which he played a young engineer who helps a rival suitor save the woman he loves and her town from an impending disaster. The film was a major success, and critics noted that the young actor, whose life as a Montana cowboy gave his role an air of legitimacy, as a, quote, dynamic new personality and future star. After the release of the film, he accepted a long-term contract with Paramount Pictures, which saw him earning a starting salary of $175 a week. It would ultimately go up to, I believe, $4,000. The film It soon followed, which famously put Clara Bow on the map. Totally off off topic for a minute, but apparently Clara Bow or Clara Bow, I, I now have a complex with that name if you're a li- regular listener of the podcast. I don't know which is correct and I can never remember it. It won't stick in my head. Anyway, I swear I took out her all today. I guess there's, well, not I guess, there's a new song on Taylor Swift's upcoming album that <laughs> has the name like Clara Bow, Clara Bow in the title. So there's been this renewed interest in Clara Bow. I saw an article about it on IndieWire and I was like, that's silly. People aren't actually interested. And then I went and looked at my analytics for my Clarabo episode and there's a very steep increase in listens and uh, just uh, like people searching and finding it starting the day that her album released or she released the names of the tracks rather. So yeah, that is a thing that happened. So can confirm from my little corner of podcast land that that happened. But yeah, so Clara Bow, Clara Bow. Oh my God. The film It, it made her, it gave, it didn't make her a star, but it did give her her name, which was the It Girl. And Gary was also there too. <laughs> they briefly dated and would work together, thanks to Clara's insistence, the following year in the first film to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars, which was Wings from 1927. Gary played a small role and had less than two minutes of screen time, but hey, gotta start somewhere. Paramount then paired Gary with Fay Ray of King Kong fame for two films in 1928, which were The Legion of the Condemned and The First Kiss, because they were trying to promote them as the studio's quote-unquote glorious young lovers. But their screen chemistry was not good, and it failed to drum up any interest in the 
audiences. So that didn't work out. But lucky for Gary, like I said, he was obscenely good looking. And with every film he was in, because obviously he didn't really have formal training before this, his acting skills improved and his popularity continued to grow, especially among female moviegoers. At this early stage in his career, he was getting about a thousand fan letters per week. Looking to exploit Gary's growing audience appeal and exploit them they did, Paramount placed him opposite several other popular leading ladies. Also at this time, he appeared in Lilac Time from 1928 for First National Pictures, which was his first movie with synchronized music and sound. It became one of the most commercially successful films of 1928, which was the year he appeared in seven films, which is an insane number even by back then standards. Seven feature films in major roles is an insane undertaking. As sound became a thing and many stars faded out due to their voices not working in a world of talking pictures, this allowed actors like Gary, who were already in the system, to kind of get a leg up. Gary's voice was deep, clear, and had this like rural draw that is actually quite pleasing to the ear, so he had zero issues transitioning. According to his daughter, he would claim his voice came from life on the ranch. Gary's star-making role was 1929's The Virginian, which you heard a clip of at the first break. Based on a popular novel, The Virginian was one of the first sound films to define the modern Western's code of honor that John Wayne would later work to break and established many of the conventions of the Western movie genre. In the film, Gary was a dreamboat. He was tall, handsome, but also had this like shy quality that, you know, made him mysterious. And for the fellas, he was a symbol of male freedom, courage, and honor, which was a persona that would carry Gary through his career despite attempts to play, you know, baddies every once in a while. Never really went well. He was always, he always had to kind of be the hero for people to be bothered to show up. In the film, Gary barely spoke, but the energy that radiated off him was evident. Gary Cooper was officially a movie star. Several features followed to take advantage of his blooming stardom, including the Western dramas Only the Brave and A Man from Wyoming and four other films in 1930 alone. But most known of his 1930 work is easily Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco. During shooting, the actor, who was playing a sullen legionnaire, he played legionnaires a lot, actually, opposite Marlene Dietrich in the role that would become her calling card for the American film industry. During production, von Sternberg focused mainly on his lead actress and ignored his lead actor. This led to mounting tensions between Gary and von Sternberg, who eventually got pissed at Gary and started yelling at him in German. Well, the six foot three inch actor didn't really like that. And while he would have a reputation throughout Hollywood as being a very mild mannered, kind man, not the case necessarily that day, because so the legend goes, he saddled up to his five foot four director, picked him up by the collar and said, quote, if you expect to work in this country, you'd better get on the language we use here. Despite the tensions, Gary's performance would be lauded by critics when the film released. By mid-1931, Gary was feeling the stress and pressure of making 10 films back-to-back. He also had anemia and jaundice and had lost 30 pounds for good measure, so dude was exhausted. And you could see in those films, especially towards the end, like I saw stills of them. I mean, the dude looked haggard. Psychologically, he was also feeling lonely and the fame and fortune had left him depressed because he didn't have anyone to share it with. He'd had several romantic relationships, including, like I mentioned, Clara Bow, but nothing had stuck. In May 1931, the 30-year-old actor had left Hollywood and sailed to Algiers and eventually landed in Italy, where he lived for the next year. 
Gary spent his year staying with the Countess Dorothy DeFrasso, who was an American millionaireess who taught him about good food and vintage wines, how to read Italian and French menus, and how to socialize among Europe's nobility and upper classes. Basically, she taught Gary everything that didn't stick in his childhood abroad. Rejuvenated by his year-long exile, Gary returned to Hollywood in April 1932 and negotiated a new contract with Paramount for two films a year, a salary of four grand a week, and director and script approval. I guess Paramount was missing that Gary Cooper box office. Gary's first film after his sabbatical was A Farewell to Arms from 1932, an adaptation of an Ernest Hemingway film of the same name about a tragic love affair between an American ambulance driver and an English nurse in Italy during World War I. The film became one of the most profitable for the year when released in December 1932 and was nominated for Best Picture. A few months later, Gary was introduced to former actress and debutante Veronica Balfe at an Easter celebration. They soon fell in love and married in December 1933, which was also when he legally changed his first name to Gary. It was overall a very strong marriage. And later when they had children, Coop was by all accounts considered a very good father. After a couple of years of being at the top of the Hollywood Hill, Gary returned to Poverty Row, Columbia specifically, to star in the film Mr. Deeds Goes to Town from 1936. In the picture, Gary plays a man who unexpectedly inherits a large fortune. You might remember the very, very poor uh, remake called Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler from about 20 years ago. This is the original. (laughs) Mr. Deeds then leaves a simple life behind for Washington, D.C., where he is forced to contend with the greed and corruption he finds there. While Gary was a very quiet and reserved actor, it was clear when the rushes were screened that his performance was monumental. Capitalizing on Gary's already established persona as the quintessential American hero, the filmmakers managed to also turn him into a folk hero for the common man. Mr. D is released in April 1936 to critical praise and was a major box office success. For his performance, Coop received his first Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. Gary returned to the Western genre in 1936 with The Plainsman, in which he played Wild Bill Hickok. The film bears basically no similarities to the real individual other than the fact that his character bears the same name, but that hardly mattered to audiences. The film opened to great success, so big in fact that for the first time in his career, Gary Cooper was named one of the top 10 box office draws by Motion Picture Magazine. He'd remain on that list for 23 years. In late 1936, Paramount was working on a new contract for the actor that would raise his salary to four grand a week. Instead, Gary signed a contract with Samuel Goldwyn for six films over six years with a minimum guarantee of $150,000 per picture. Paramount was working him to the bone and the actor and his wife were expecting a baby, so understandable that he'd want to be working a little bit less for a lot more. Well, Paramount got pissy and filed a lawsuit against Goldwyn and Gary over the timing of the contract, but the court ruled that Gary's new contract allowed plenty of time for him to honor his old Paramount one, which still had a little bit of time left on it. Cooper continued to make films with both studios for several years. By 1939, Gary Cooper was the country's highest wage earner, making about $483,000, which is about $10-11 million today. Which isn't a lot, but that was, you know, compared to what stars make now. But back then, that was crazy. 
In contrast to the five films he made in 1936, Gary appeared in just one picture in 1937, the adventure film Souls at Sea. It was a critical and box office failure, and the actor would say later that it was his, quote, almost picture, stating, quote, It was almost exciting and almost interesting, and I was almost good. Next, Coop appeared in The Adventures of Marco Polo for Goldwyn, and the film was plagued by production problems and the screenplay was trash. So when it released, the film became Goldwyn's biggest failure to date and lost the studio $700,000, which again was a big loss back then. Now movies regularly lose significantly more than that if they bomb hard enough. Gary also famously turned down several roles that would be iconic for the actors who did. The biggest one he turned down is probably Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. The producers of the film tried in vain several times to get Gary to do it, but it was for naught. The actor later stated that it was the best role he was ever offered, but he just couldn't believe himself to be as handsome or as quote-unquote dashing as the man described in the book and therefore in the screenplay. When he saw Clark Gable in the role, he knew he'd made the right choice. After a series of underperforming roles, Gary returned to Adventures and Westerns in 1939 to greet success. With the film Beau Guest, which was about French legionnaires in the desert, he finally completed his contract with Paramount. The 1940s were probably the highlight of Gary Cooper's career. He started the decade out by appearing in several popular films, including The Westerner, which was about a wayward cowboy who defends homesteaders against a corrupt judge. In 1941, his friend Frank Capra, who directed him in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, offered him the lead role in his next film, Meet John Doe. Coop accepted the role before a script was even written. He trusted his friend's word that strongly. Also, it was Frank Capra. So. In the film, Coop played a down-and-out pitcher who is hired by a newspaper to pretend that he is a man who promises to commit suicide on Christmas Eve to protest all the hypocrisy and corruption in the country. I cannot believe this has not been remade because that just sounds like something they would be remade poorly. The film is considered by many to be the best Frank Capra film ever made. I'm biased to it happen one night personally, but that's just me. And the film was a huge event upon its release in the spring of 1941. Critics praised Gary's performance in the film. He also appeared in Sergeant York that year, in which Gary played Alvin C. York, one of the most decorated American soldiers from World War I. Gary was a little antsy about playing a still-living American hero, so he traveled to Tennessee to visit York, where he got his blessing and the two bonded. Directed by Coop's buddy Howard Hawks, the film received rave reviews, was the highest grossing film of the year, and saw Gary Cooper winning his first Academy Award. He followed up that explosive year by making just one film in 1942, but it was a banger, The Pride of the Yankees, in which the actor plays Lou Gehrig. At the time, the baseball player who held the record for consecutive starts for the Yankees had only just passed away the year previous because of the disease that is commonly referred to by his name. I do, however, hear it less these days, but if you don't know, it's ALS. That was commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. I don't really hear it as much since they did the Ice Bucket Challenge, so I'm not sure if that's like the prevailing name anymore, but that's what it is. Just to just fully over-explain. As was the case with Sergeant York, Coop was antsy about playing a real person, a national hero, in fact, not unlike himself, especially one who had just passed away. He, f I think he felt it was a little exploitative. 
He also knew nothing about baseball and he was right handed and Lou was famously left handed. So he wasn't sure. And he actually only took the role after he met Garrick's widow, who told him that she wanted him to play her husband. And like, what are you going to do? Say no to a widow? No. Like I said, Garrick was famously left handed and Coop was not. So in the scenes that showed the character doing like baseball stuff, the filmmakers had all of the lettering reversed, like on the on the uniforms, on the stands and everything. So Coop could do all the like batting and whatever right handed and in post they just flipped it. Very sneaky. Ernest Hemingway requested Coop to play the lead in the adaptation of his novel For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was a hotly anticipated film. Hemingway had given the character quirks that were similar to Gary Cooper's mannerisms just to kind of really hit it home, but that was another very successful turn for Gary Cooper. Coop was in his early 40s when the U.S. entered World War II, and between that and his health history, he had the really bad hip and some other stuff was starting to drum up we'll get to a little bit later, so he was ineligible for military service. Like John Wayne, though, Coop wanted to do his part and spent time overseas entertaining the troops. The USO shows he participated in concluded with Coop reciting the Lou Gehrig farewell speech from Pride of the Yankees. With his contracts complete at both Paramount and now Goldwyn, Coop opted to stay independent for the next stage of his career. Unfortunately for him, during the post-war years, his popularity waned a bit as American audiences were looking for something different. Coop still played the heroic roles that had made him a star, but these films now relied less on his on-screen persona and more on the story and the exotic locale than anything else. They didn't really care about like who was on the screen. They cared more about like what was happening in the film. Like John Wayne, Gary Cooper also famously spoke out in favor of the HUAC hearings. He appeared in front of them and just kind of claimed that he heard things about communism in Hollywood, but he wasn't as big a participant in all of that as John Wayne was. But, you know, I feel like it bears mentioning. During the filming of The Fountainhead, which would be released in 1949, Gary started an affair with his co-star Patricia Neal. Ironic, as he didn't want her cast in the role after seeing her audition for it. The affair was an open secret in Hollywood, despite them starting out as being quite discreet. He and his wife agreed to briefly separate, but the duo stayed civil for their daughter and would ultimately reconcile in 1953. When the film released, it got abysmal reviews, with one critic calling Coop's performance, quote, Mr. Deeds out of his element. After a string of stinkers to finish up the 1940s, Gary Cooper appeared in what would become probably his best known film. Like if I were to be asked to name a Gary Cooper movie, this is what I would say. It's 1952's High Noon. In the film, the actor played a retiring sheriff who is preparing to leave on his honeymoon to his new bride. Before that can happen, he finds out that an outlaw he helped capture and his three henchmen are returning to enact their revenge. Abandoned by everyone, he faces the four men alone. During shooting, Gary was in poor health and in pain from stomach ulcers. This discomfort was evident in some scenes, which affected his performance. Technically, it wasn't a good way because people were like, oh, he just looks really tortured, which he was. So it's like as good, you know, as in, when I say good way, it's like as good as like being in constant pain can possibly do. Like if you really want to look for that silver lining, I guess that was it. When High Noon released, it was met with acclaim and is to this day considered one of the best Westerns ever made. And Coop won his second Oscar for the performance. One of Coop's last major roles was 1956's Love in the Afternoon, which co-starred a 26-year-old Audrey Hepburn. 
Gary, who was nearly 30 years her senior, was uncomfortable at the idea of him romancing a much younger woman. So the script was switched. So Hepburn's character was the pursuer. Despite that change, which was a pretty smart change, all things considered, audiences didn't really like the fact that their heroic, highly moralistic Gary Cooper was romancing a young girl who was young enough to be his daughter. And the age difference was obvious despite director Billy Wilder trying to hide the difference by keeping Coop in the shadows and using some other camera tricks and lens stuff. But regardless of this, the film was a box office success. What was becoming obvious to some by this point was that the actor was ailing. Coop had been struggling with health problems for years, and the old injuries were also causing problems. He had also just received a severe shoulder injury during the filming of Blowing Wind from 1953 when he was hit by metal fragments from an oil well. He was also receiving ongoing treatment for stomach ulcers and now hernias. During the filming of Vera Cruz, he re-injured the bad hip by falling from a horse and was burned when co-star Burt Lancaster fired his rifle too close and packing from the shell punctured his costume. Despite this, he continued appearing in action in Western films, including Man of the West from 1958, which is considered by many historians to be his last good film. After finishing a contract with Warner Brothers, Gary founded Barada Productions and made three films in 1959 about redemption, including the Western The Hanging Tree. In the film, Coop played a frontier doctor who saves a criminal from a lynch mob and later tries to exploit his past. These three films that he made are considered odd by some critics. I have not seen them, so I cannot concur. But that is the description that I got from the sources that I used. On April 14, 1960, Coop underwent surgery for an aggressive form of prostate cancer that had metastasized to his colon. He fell ill again six weeks later and underwent another procedure in early June to remove a malignant tumor from his large intestine. He spent the summer recovering in France with his family before traveling to the UK in the fall to star in The Naked Edge, which would be his final film. On December 27th, his wife learned from their doctor that her husband's cancer had spread to his lungs and bones and therefore was terminal. His family decided not to tell him immediately as treatment would have been futile, which was a thing that apparently happened a lot back then, which is just a horrifying thing to think about. The doctor's like, oh, you have cancer, but he didn't need to know that. That's insane to me. Two months later, after another family vacation, Coop learned that he was in fact dying. He was too ill to accept his Lifetime Achievement Oscar in April and watched with tears in his eyes as dear friend James Stewart accepted it on his behalf. The next day, it was blasted in newspapers all over the world that Gary Cooper, the hero of so many films, was dying. Well wishes came from all corners of the world, including from the Pope. In his last public statement on May 4th, 1961, Coop said, quote, I know what is happening is God's will. I'm not afraid of the future. He received his last rites on Friday, May 12th and died the next day. He was laid to rest in Culver City after a funeral mass attended by his friends and loved ones, but was exhumed in 1974 when his family relocated to New York. His now eternal resting place is Sacred Heart Cemetery in Southampton. Gary Cooper's career spanned 36 years, during which time he appeared in 84 films as a leading man. Even more than half a century after his death, his betrayals are looked back on as the image of the ideal American hero of that era. Actor Charlton Heston once said of the actor, quote, He rejected the kind of man Americans would like to be, probably more than any actor that's ever lived. I have been given fame, an undeserved praised by the boys 
up there behind the wire in the press box. My friends, the sports writer, I have worked under the two greatest managers of all time. I have a mother and father who fought to give me health and a solid background in my I have a wife, a companion for life, who has shown me more courage than I ever knew. People all say that I've had a bad break. But today, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch list, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you tip me with a coffee. This morning I got some fills because I hadn't had it in a while and I had a craving. I also accidentally ordered it from a faraway fill, so I felt very bad for the driver. That was my bad. I've also got merch. Check it out with the link in the show notes. Next week, the life and career of someone whose name has been mentioned in these last two episodes. So we'll finally figure out what was going on over there. That's right. We're covering Jimmy Stewart. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.